Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It is Thursday. It is May. The fourth, so a couple of things. I'm supposed to be saying things like, may the fourth be with you. Because that's, you know, what a particular group of people are paying attention to today. It's also the National Day of Prayer. We're going to spend an extended period of time praying um, at the top of the next hour. We always start this hour with our Growing Your Faith verse of the day. So we're going to do that today because we want to get into the Word of God, that the Word of God might get into us preparing us to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and to do so in ways that honor Jesus. So where in the word are you today? You can always text me during the program, 877-933-2484. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and you're listening to Faith Radio. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken For he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. So let me ask this morning, what do you know and how do you know it? What do you know and how do you know it? The psalmist says, I know the Lord is always with me. The knowledge of the presence of the Lord is a true joy and comfort. I mean, the psalmist says here, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken. He is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. The knowledge of the presence of the Lord, that truth is a joy and a comfort. I want to talk about the relationship between truth and thoughts and feelings or emotions. Feelings follow thoughts. Feelings follow thoughts. Too often, um, we allow our feelings and our emotions to be determined or even ruled by external events, situations, circumstances, or the behavior of others. Your spouse left you. Your children don't come around. Your body is aging or aching. The world is in an uproar. You, are you allowing those circumstances to consume your thoughts and determine the relative joy of your life and how you feel about God? Or do you know that the Lord is always with you? Beheld by him, held by him, you are not shaken, for he is right beside you. Let your heart be glad and rejoice in that today. Allow your body to rest in the safety of the presence of the Lord right now. Your feelings are not your thoughts, but your 
thoughts, particularly your habitual thoughts, have the power to rule your feelings. Now, at first, it might be difficult to separate the two because we have grown very accustomed to uh, answering out of our feelings. I mean, we've arrived at the point where sometimes we can't even tell someone what we're actually thinking. We can only tell them what we feel. But if you and I, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to live with every thought captive to him and his lordship, if we're going to willingly submit moment by moment, day by day to the active presence and transforming power of his spirit within us, then we're going to first have to do the work of separating our thoughts from our feelings. So as a Christian, as a Christian, how, do, how I feel about something is governed by how God thinks about it, how God sees it. So how does Jesus respond to the presence of a child? How does Jesus respond to the presence of a person who is literally out of their mind? Or how does Jesus respond to the broken woman at the well or the pagan in the street or the representative of an oppressive governmental power that comes to arrest him? How does Jesus see it? And do I see it as Jesus sees it? The circumstance, the situation, the other. If Jesus were right here, right now, inhabiting my body, inhabiting your body, what would he be thinking? His mind would be set on the Father and his will. And then Jesus would do the will of the Father. That, that's, that's how Jesus thinks and what he does. His mind would be set on the Father and the will of the Father, and then he would do it. Jesus came to show us what it looks like to love God in every moment, in every way, every day. Jesus came to show us the Father and do the will of the Father. Jesus came to reveal the character and the will of God and then demonstrate what it looks like to think and feel and act that out in real time. Did he also come to seek and to save the lost? Yes. Did he come to die an atoning sacrifice upon the cross? Yes. But he's also the exemplar of how he expects you and I as people inhabited by his spirit, walking around in the world that he so loves, to behave ourselves. So before you describe how you feel about something, I want you to think about how you're thinking about it. The psalmist says, I know the Lord. I know the Lord is always with me. (laughs) I will not be shaken. He's right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. Ben Johnson joins us next. We are going to tackle some of the headlines of the day from a Christian worldview. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Ben Johnson is joining us now. Um, In addition to being the rights writer and a senior reporter and editor at the Washington Stand, Ben is a pastor. And so, Ben, um, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Always good to be with you, Carmen. You and I have both read a piece at Nine Marks um, about the importance of the local church and the importance of participation in the local church. I I am reminded here of of how and where we learn to be the people of God. Can you talk about this, how political life begins in the church? 
Well, the uh, piece by Patrick Schreiner is uh, insightful in the fact that it says that we begin our political life in church and people think, well, you know, that means political involvement or political education within church, which can be a component of, of something that some churches do. But he's talking about the fact that our identity and our citizenship is bound up with a different kingdom, with the kingdom of God himself, which is the church. Uh, when we begin to develop that citizenship, uh, that is where we truly begin to develop our Christian identity. The scriptures, he says, call us to submit to the governing authorities. Uh, and at the same time, we subvert the system. The way that we subvert the system, he says, is primarily by not paying it our highest allegiance. And I, I think that he makes a, a, a capital point where he, he is speaking about the fact that uh, our our churches are an outpost of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so we begin to develop citizenship within these uh, churches, within uh, our communities of worship around the world. And that's where we begin to truly undermine the system by saying that there is something higher, there's something that transcends this system, that my life and my political life here on earth are not coterminous, that I owe my allegiance and my devotion to something that is a higher and eternal and more abiding reality to the holy city, New Jerusalem, that is going to be revealed, the uh, abiding city to which we have our allegiance. Uh, I'm always reminded of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, where uh, the Apostle Paul says that we are Christ's ambassadors. Mm -hmm. And we, we should develop that metaphor because an embassy, if we are ambassadors, that means that we attend an embassy known as a church, and an embassy is sovereign territory of another kingdom to which all the people who gather there owe their permanent allegiance. And so that is our allegiance to our king, uh, even though we gather uh, in our communities, in our homes, we may very well be active in our political system. Nonetheless, our ultimate allegiance and uh, our complete devotion and loyalty is to the king of kings who transcends the system entirely. And so we subvert uh, what's going on here from within by saying eternal life begins now and my devotion is owed to the king of kings. I mean, we were reminded um, both in Afghanistan and more recently in Sudan, what happens when your embassy closes um, and how bereft you are. Um, and so when we think about our churches being embassies of the kingdom of God, outposts of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, it should grieve us when any expression, um, any outpost closes up, because it does leave those people in that proximity um, bereft of a witness in, in, a, in a way. And so I appreciate um, the, the way more and more people are talking now openly about the kingdom and the advancement of the kingdom um, and our allegiance to the king. Um, and as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we have to know what that means. I mean, what, what, what does it look like? Who are we talking about? What are the principles and the ways of God that are practiced in his kingdom under his lordship? Um, and then what does it look like for us to live out at least glimpses of that reality, provisional expressions of the kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world? It's a, um, it's a provocative conversation, so um, thank you for engaging in it. 
I want to talk, um, when we come back from a very brief break, Ben, I want to talk about bringing the Bible into the national conversation about marriage. You have a piece posted right now at the Washington Stand. Could we talk about that next? I'd be delighted. Excellent. Um, we're also going to ask um, Ben how to be happy, because he has the answer to that question as well. Mm-hmm. Ben Johnson with us this morning. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Continuing our conversation with Ben Johnson this morning, if you visit WashingtonStand.com, one of the pieces you'll see posted there by our friend Ben is Republican Party chapter cites Genesis in resolution endorsing natural marriage. Let me start with this, Ben. Just because someone else declares a debate closed, does it make it so? Well, that's that's the most encouraging thing about this. Obviously, that's not the case. The, uh, the discussion has been effectively uh, read out of polite society over the definition of marriage. Uh, at this point, they say that uh, the other side has triumphed and uh, the conversation is closed. We should just pack up and walk away, which uh, I'm, I'm old enough. Uh, I'll speak for myself. I'm old enough to remember when that was the case on uh, the right to life as well. Mm-hmm. Back in the 1980s and 1990s, vast majorities of uh, Americans said that they supported uh, abortion on demand in in uh, polls, uh, according to some of the polls that were taken at any rate, and uh, so it was. We were told that the conversation was over. The same uh, the same thing applied to marriage, and this uh, local chapter, the Jackson County, Missouri uh, Republican Party, passed a resolution saying that they believe in natural marriage, and they cited the Bible in it, which was exciting to me that people were thinking scripturally. Um, yeah, and we talk about the Defense of Marriage Act. Some of us, when you talk about being old enough to remember something, I'm old enough to remember the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act signed into law at a federal level by President Bill Clinton. We have um, migrated away, or I, I mean, I'm going to use that language. Other people would say, you know, expanded our view of of what marriage is and who could be included rightly in a marriage. But for Christians... Like, again, this maybe this leans into the kingdom conversation we just had. Um, God defines marriage. God creates marriage. And in, in his kingdom, there is a marriage, one, one marriage. Um, and that is Jesus and his bride is the church. 
marriage here on earth is simply pointing to that and, and intended to be uh, a, a demonstration of that or a, or a glimpse of that. Um, for us to redefine it in any other way or to imagine that we, it could be constituted in, in whatever ways fit our particular um, cultural imagination in the moment, um, like, I, I, it's expressly contrary to the king and his kingdom. And so if we're going to be kingdom people in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, like, this has to be a place where we keep saying, God made this, and it is so. Amen. We totally do. And the, the fact that uh, the, our marriages here on earth uh, truly, truly reflect the kingdom of God and his marriage uh, between Christ and the church, uh, his, his bride, uh, as you say, this is, this is the true meaning uh, of marriage. And that's reflected in what uh, Michael Card calls the earthly perfect harmony of our own marriages. Uh, and, and so I like the fact that uh, this, this local chapter happens to cite the Bible. Uh, the resolution says the first blessing of God is recorded in Genesis 128 and pronounced over one man and one woman, be fruitful and multiply to substantiate the nuclear family through reproduction. Marriage is understood to be ordained by nature's God as the only blessing by which new human beings are created equal in nature. So I, I was just excited by the fact that they were referencing their faith and bringing that into the conversation, which has been declared closed. And yet they are, they are saying, as Christians, this is where we stand. This is what we believe. And we can, here I stand, I can do no other. I must stand on the ground of Scripture, where it declares, uh, both in Genesis and in the words of Jesus in the Gospel, that in the beginning, God created man and woman for this uh, representation of his true eternal marriage, which uh, will be consummated at the end of the age. All right, now I want to talk with you about the other piece um, up right now at WashingtonStand.com, written by yours truly, um, and it is about how to be happy. So um, in this Wall Street Journal NORC poll, which they've been conducting for many, many years now, um, they're gauging how many Americans say they're very happy um, and what those people have in common with one another. So I'm, you know, I don't know if it's causal. It's certainly correlative. Like there's a correlation between uh, believing in God and being married and being very happy. But let's talk about the numbers. What percentage of Americans describe themselves as very happy today? Oh, it's depressing if you hear about how many people are happy. About one in 10, it's, it's 12%. So essentially, out of out of every ten people that you know, only one is very happy, and uh, so it's it's heartbreaking. They say this is the lowest number that they have ever recorded uh, in this. The uh, the group that uh, Wall Street Journal is conducting this this with NORC N O R C has been conducting the general social survey all the way back to 1972. This is the lowest number in 51 years. Of course, part of that's the fact that uh, one of those years, 2020, lasted for about two and a half years on its own. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just a few years ago that uh, a much higher percentage of people described themselves as very happy. Um, what do the, this this 12% of people who describe themselves as very happy, what are some of the things they have in common? One of the things that uh, really stands out is their faith in God. Uh, and mm -hmm. it, it's, it's like an exact correlation almost. As you say, it's not necessarily uh, the, the point of the poll that it's a cause. They can't prove that. But there's a very high correlation. If you look at people who are very happy, 68% of Americans uh, who are very happy say they believe in God. 
people who are pretty happy, 47% believe in God. And people who are not happy, there you have a minority, 42% uh, are, uh, believe in God. So there is a very strong correlation between belief in God and uh, happiness, which, by the way, is reproduced in multiple other studies, which I go into in the piece at Washington Stand, but uh, they, they talk about the, uh, the importance of resilience. Uh, for example, uh, both uh, in the United States and in the UK, they found that believers, particularly Christian believers, have high levels of uh, self-reported well-being and good mental health. They have uh, positive behaviors. They're less likely to use drugs less likely to be uh, in, involved in uh, criminal behavior. And uh, there was even a study from Harvard. I love the fact that it's from Harvard because Harvard has to confess and admit it now. Uh, when, whenever one of your professors does a study, you have to post it on your academic website. So Harvard hosts uh, a study right now that says that people who were raised religious and attended services regularly or were taught to pray or read scripture are more happy as adults, even if they no longer practice that because of the firm foundation that they had, that uh, perhaps they avoided bad, bad decisions, poor behavior, and they learned uh, better coping skills when they were young, even if they later abandoned their faith. So truly, if you raise a child in the way he, in which you should go, uh, the results will be long lasting. And ideally, they will uh, stay with the faith or return to the faith later on. It's very hopeful. I want to direct people to it. Um, both of Ben's pieces posted right now at WashingtonStand.com. Um, I will shoot them out to you via text message if you ask me to do so. Um, that would be on the text line, 877-933-2484. Ben, as always, thank you so much. Thank you for a couple of great conversations this morning and uh, wonderful to be back with you. Yeah, likewise. It's great to have you. All right, friends, we're going to um, continue our conversations on this National Day of Prayer. Let's go upwards with Max Lucado. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Well, realities on the southern border um, have, have reached a pitch point, um, and everyone is paying attention. And there are many, many efforts to bring resolution um, in fact, uh, the House of Representatives will be voting on a resolution uh, this week. And so um, maybe it's next week. I had to pull it up. Um, I think it's ne- it must be next week because they're all home right now. Um, I think it's called H.R. 4. And it, you, you will want to engage prayerfully in this conversation, um, particularly for communities on the U.S. southern border that are absolutely overwhelmed. Um, Title 42 is about to expire. Um, You know, people across not only Central and South America, but people around the world are aware of that. Um, And there are um, what have been averaging something like 1,200 migrants a day um, flowing over just one part of the Rio Grande Friday. Um, you know, that, that number was like 7,000. Their, their facility is totally overwhelmed. Um, we're talking about millions of people in terms of those who have already arrived, and we are um, looking at the prospect of millions more. People are desperate. I mean, we know why they're seeking to come, and we need an immigration system that is actually designed for the times in which we live when the, the greatest number of people around the world is on the move, you know, like in all of human history. So 
Um, we're going to have a conversation with Matt Sorens from World Relief and the Evangelical Immigration Table. We're going to talk about, um, I mean, we have a balanced approach to this. We recognize the necessity of a secure border. We also recognize um, the necessity of of these people, these precious image bearers of God, who have so desperately um, left the places where they were to come to a place where they hope to find asylum um, and life. And so balancing um, those two very important and um, and sometimes um, conflict, seemingly conflicting priorities is a challenge. Uh, and it's something that each and every one of us must prayerfully um, consider and and prepare to be a part of uh, a solution in relationship to it. So Matt Sorens is going to join us next. We're going to talk about the expiration of Title 42. We're going to talk about what's happening at the southern border. Um, we're going to talk about the mobilization of U.S. troops to the border and what that might mean and what that might um, you know, result in as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. Joining us again today, Matt Sorens. Um, he serves an organization called World Relief. You can find what World Relief is doing at worldrelief.org. He also serves at the Evangelical Immigration Table. You can find resources there at evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. Matt, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you, Carmen. Okay, the southern border has reached like a pitch point. I mean, I, you and I have been talking about this for years now. Um, everyone is aware that there is a humanitarian crisis. People are streaming in the direction of the United States. Um, they're leaving any number of desperate situa- situations around the world. Um, Title 42 is set to end. Maybe just talk, talk with us about your perspective on what's happening. Yeah, so Title 42 is is not actually an immigration law. It's an it's a public health law. It basically says that in the midst of a pandemic, we can a government can not follow certain other laws, and that includes um, basically Title 42 has allowed the U.S. government to not follow normal U.S. asylum laws for in certain cases because of the pandemic. Well, obviously, most of us have pretty well moved past the COVID-19 pandemic, so it's probably inevitable that sooner or later we would have to revert back to our normal existing immigration laws. Uh, and the challenge is you have this buildup of people who've been waiting for their chance to seek asylum now for, you know, three years. Um, some of whom have been eligible to do so through sort of narrow exceptions, but whole nationalities have been excluded. And that has created just a ton of, uh, a large number of people seeking, going to the border, some of whom probably have very good asylum claims, some of whom frankly do not. There's tons of misinformation and disinformation spread by smugglers who have a you know, a financial interest in getting people to come to the border. Um, it, my perspective on this is, you know, we we need to have two principles in mind. It's important that our government has a secure border. It's a responsibility of government to protect the, the nation and to know who's coming into the country and keep out those seeking to do harm. And that's absolutely true. And at the same time, it's true that we have both moral and legal commitments in the United States to offer protection to those who are actually fleeing from persecution. And we don't want to compromise on, on due process for those who, who profess to have a credible fear of persecution. That doesn't mean that they all get to come and stay in the United States, but that they all ought to have a, you know, a fair process to determine if they indeed do qualify. And the real challenge right now is there's just far more people coming and 
saying that they have a fear of something in their country of origin, then our government has the capacity to process in any sort of a timely fashion. And that, that's been true for a while, but it's really culminating now with the end of this policy and with lots of you know misinformation and fueling over the internet and elsewhere about what that means. I mean, there's these rumors that the border is going to be open. That's not true. We're going back to the immigration laws that were on the books during the Trump administration until COVID-19 during the Obama administration, and those will be enforced. Um, some people will qualify to stay. Most people probably won't. Um, but the, there's lots of rumors flying over the internet that have led a lot of people to to come to the border at this point. And it's a real, really challenging situation with a lot of people on both the Mexican side of the border and then already on the U.S. side of the border as some individuals are being processed and able to pursue asylum in the United States. Let's talk about the communication challenge. Let's talk about the added presence of 1,500 armed active duty U.S. members of the U.S. military um, who are not there apparently to do what they're particularly trained to do. Um, can you just talk, like it? It just seems like a mess that's only getting worse, and I don't want to be. I I. I I would love for us to have a positive way forward. I know that people have suggested many options in terms of a positive way forward, including, um, you know, what people can read and engage with at evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. Um, is it positive or negative that 1,500 active duty members of the U.S. military are being sent to the southern border? Yeah, I mean, this is something that has happened in the past. It's happening now under the Biden administration, happened under the Trump administration uh, when there are large numbers of people. One of the challenges is under U.S. law, military personnel cannot do domestic law enforcement. So though they are coming with weapons, uh, apparently for um, self-defense, they're not going to be apprehending people crossing the border. They're not allowed to do that under U.S. law. So they can do some sort of administrative tasks to support the Border Patrol. Um, they, the reality is, I think, largely they're there as, as a symbol, on the one hand, to an American population who has been, in some cases, told this is, you know, this sort of narrative of these people are coming and in invading the country. I think that that's a really inaccurate narrative. These are people coming with their hands out, many of them brothers and sisters in Christ, asking for help. And that doesn't mean they all have a right to stay in the United States, but they're not. This is not the Russian military coming into Ukraine with weapons, trying to take things over, which is when a military response is obviously appropriate. Um, on the other hand, I think it's also trying to send a message to the rest of the world saying, if you heard the border was open, that's not true. Um, here's some images of U.S. military at the border. Don't come. Uh, it's a, you know, I think it's more about communications, honestly, both to the U.S. political uh, audience as well as to those who might be considering coming than it is about any actual border security dynamic. And I think that's true in, you know, in multiple administrations. I wish instead of sending the military, we were sending trained asylum officers. And unfortunately, that that would take um, some congressional intervention to provide the resources um, to be able to adjudicate asylum applications in a in a timely fashion that hasn't happened for many years, and to do so in a way that encourages people to come in an orderly way to the ports of entry, not crossing the border unlawfully, which they actually have a right to do under U.S. law. They can seek asylum at any point along the border, whether they cross lawfully or not. But we certainly should be encouraging lawful entry. But by not having the capacity to adjudicate asylum requests, which we haven't had adequately for years, uh, it it essentially funnels people out into very dangerous crossings where they're vulnerable to unscrupulous smugglers and where the Border Patrol's resources are very thinly stretched as well. And and it's not even just resources in terms of, like, Congress appropriates money for Border Patrol. They can't hire enough people to actually 
to, to use all the money that Congress has appropriated. It's just not a very um, popular job. And yet sending the military doesn't, they can't sort of step into those roles. They're not trained for them. And legally, U.S. military cannot do domestic law enforcement. Um, yeah, so border border guards were just told um, yesterday that they would begin mandated seven-day work weeks at the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, yeah, beginning May 7th. Uh, that's That's in three days. So that's not a lot of time to... Um, you know, organize how you might get your other things cared for if you're going to be working seven days a week doing a job that we already know they are stretched thin um, to do and and many quite exhausted. Um, I see a communication challenge in terms of, you know, people are coming not just from Mexico, certainly not just from Central and South America, where the dominant or predominant languages might be... Uh, Spanish and Portuguese, but they're coming from more than a hundred countries around the world, and that's right. That, you know, present, that presents a tremendous challenge for um, any any U.S. person who's going to be encountering them. Yeah, absolutely, that's true. The, the The nationalities of people coming. There's always been some people from around the world, but they have. We've seen really significant increases, even though, of course, the majority are from Latin America. Um, but increases in people from from other parts of the world, from Africa, from from Asia, from Europe, um, we, you know, we've seen Ukrainians and and Afghans and others who have been unable to access uh, opportunities to come lawfully to the United States, you know, on an airplane, and their their last chance in their mind to seek asylum is to get to the border, and um, and you know, with those are some very compelling asylum cases as well. I mean, you have persecuted Christians and other persecuted religious minorities who are at risk because of their faith, uh, faith in Jesus, or some other religious tradition in some cases, um, who are seeking asylum at the border. But as you said, the language dynamics, the cultural dynamics, it just becomes very complicated. And, and in some ways, I think it's a function of a dysfunctional legal migration system, where if we had a more robust refugee resettlement process, our government would be identifying some of those individuals overseas, vetting them overseas and confirming that they indeed are at risk of persecution because of their faith or their nationality, their political opinion, and flying them into the United States on an, on an airplane where they're met by World Relief or another refugee resettlement agency and hopefully a local church to help them adjust. When we've dramatically reduced refugee resettlement over the last five to six years, one of the effects is people who are really desperate do everything possible to get out of their countries and if they're you know, and they can somehow get to the Western Hemisphere, a tourist visa to some country in South America or the Central America, they'll make their way up because the U.S. does offer asylum to those who can reach the border. They, that's, that's the only place you can seek asylum is if you get to the United States. And so in some ways, this has been a problem a long time in coming as we've reduced legal immigration options, especially for those fleeing persecution. And at the same time, shut down asylum for certain nationalities for a number of years under the, you know, under the context of, of COVID-19. Okay, we're going to take a very brief break. Matt, when we come back, um, I'm going to have you, I know we do this virtually every time you come and join us, but I think it bears repeating. Um, I would like for you to remind us again the difference between people who are seeking asylum, um, people who have formal refugee status, or what what that word actually means, and then people who have temporary protected status, because there's a a new conversation in relationship to um, Sudanese people who are here in the United States under temporary protected status that is expiring. So could we differentiate between those three groups of people when we come back? Sure. 
All right. So we're talking with Matt Sorens from World Relief and the Evangelical Immigration Table. Fantastic resources for you at evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. And you can engage with your church in refugee resettlement through worldrelief.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Matthew Sorens. You can find him at WorldRelief.org and the EvangelicalImmigrationTable.com. Matt, let's distinguish between the situations that people are in that provoke them to want to leave where they are and come to a place like the United States of America. Particularly, I'm thinking here about um, asylum seekers, refugees, and people with temporary protected status. There are probably others as well, but those are the three um, that that seem to uh, come up in the news frequently enough that I think we need to understand how they are different from one another. Yeah. So under U.S. law, a refugee is someone who's fled their own country, is in a second country. So let's say it's a Ukrainian who's gone to Poland or a Syrian who's gone to Jordan or a Burmese person who's gone to Thailand, specifically because of a credible fear of persecution on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. And each year, uh, most refugees in the world, there's literally 30 million plus refugees in the world. Most of them will stay in that country that they flee to often for years or even decades a small share of them will be selected by the U.S. government or potentially the Canadian government or the Australian government or other countries that do refugee resettlement. And f- after being vetted and verified to meet that definition, flown to the United States to give them the chance to rebuild their lives. So last year that was, um, you know, in most years recently that we've been looking at about 30,000 refugees per year. So a very small share out of more than 30 million who get selected for a settlement. Um, the Biden administration has said they hope to increase that potentially as high as 125,000, but still a small share of, of all the world's refugees. The other term that we've been discussing is asylum. Asylum, the distinction, the, the legal standard is exactly the same. You have to prove a credible fear of persecution for the exact same reasons. The distinction is where that determination is made. So someone who is not selected for a settlement overseas, but makes their own way to the United States, whether walking, if that's conceivable or on a temporary visa like a student visa or a tourist visa um, once they get to the united states either at the border or once they're within the united states on temporary status uh, they're allowed to say basically hey u.s government please don't send me back because i am afraid of persecution because of my faith or because of my political opinion or because of my nationality or one of these reasons and then they have the burden of proof they, they have to prove with documentary evidence that that they are indeed credibly afraid um, that their fear is rational and grounded in, in evidence that they can present. Um, and again, those things are related largely in that when when there's no opportunities for refugee resettlement, it's more likely that people will do everything possible to try to get to the United States to seek asylum or to Europe or to other locations where it might be able to protect them. 
The third category you mentioned, Carmen, temporary protected status. This is something that's part of our laws going back to the George H.W. Bush administration. Basically, when there's some sort of a, a crisis in a particular country, whether that's a political crisis, a war, or a natural disaster, the U.S. government can offer temporary protected status to individuals from that country of origin who happen to be in the United States at the time it's declared. Um, so, for example, you mentioned Sudan. There's, unfortunately, and this is a very serious concern to us at World Relief because we have a lot of colleagues in Sudan. Some of them have had to evacuate in the last few weeks. Um, but Sudan is in the midst of a civil war at this point. And um, so if, for the U.S. to have someone who's here on a temporary visa and their tourist visa expires this week, to send them back to Sudan right now would be rather cruel and inhumane. And so what temporary protected status does is it says for the next 18 months, and then we'll reconsider after 18 months if the situation has changed, you can stay here on a temporary basis. And, and while you're here, you can apply for work authorization. So, um, you know, every administration has used that for certain nationalities. The largest group right now is actually probably Venezuelans who were granted temporary protected status back in 2021. Um, and th that is something they can apply for, whether they were on a valid visa or they had overstayed their visa or um, you know, whatever whatever the case may be, as long as they meet certain qualifications, you know, certain criminal issues, of course, would disqualify you. They're eligible to be protected temporarily in the United States until the the White House, the the Department of Homeland Security declares actually it's safe to send you back to your country of origin. Yeah, and the definition of safe um, is relative. <laughs> I mean, and just... that's always the challenge is that can be a, a political discussion. There was discussions, uh, you know, yeah. some years ago, was El Salvador safe to send people back to? And some people mm -hmm. said yes. Many others said, no, it's really not. Look at the homicide rates there with gang violence. Yeah. Um, let me ask this, Matt. How how would you have us pray and what would you have us do? I love that question. I, you know, I think it's, I would be praying, pray for President Biden, pray for the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary Mayorkas, pray for congressional leaders, both you know, Republicans and Democrats and independents. Because U.S. policy has a huge impact on this, and we're told to pray for kings and all those in authority. So whether you, pref you, know, you like the president or not, or your senators or not, we're called to pray for them. Uh, also pray for the people caught up in the midst of this, who are often just incredibly vulnerable people. Many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ who are just really desperate. Pray for the churches on both sides of the border. Um, and honestly, some of the most challenging situations, and I was there two weeks ago in Tijuana with a partner of World Relief, a little Baptist church, just doing valiant work to try to care for people, but with very you know limited resources. We're doing the best we can at World Relief to support them, but it's it's really challenging, and there's a lot of people stuck on the Mexican side of the border. And and then I would also say pray for the Border Patrol and, and for other you know authorities within our government who have a really hard job, and frankly, a job that most of them it's not what they signed up for. They thought they were going to be protecting the border and they're actually processing children and families for asylum requests. Um, and they're doing so with the best of their ability, but it is a challenging job and there's not enough people in that role to meet the need right now for fully, um, you know, fully staffing that situation. So all those are p places to pray. And that'd be my first response. I, I also encourage people. There are ways to, you know, join world relief and what we're doing to care for people both at the border. And for those who are allowed to pursue asylum once they're in the United States, I've been doing so uh, with a friend here in my neighborhood in Aurora, Illinois, who showed up at my church a few weeks ago and been able to help connect him to World Relief's legal services to explore his, you know, his claim for asylum. Um, people can help support that as part of the PATH, which is our monthly giving community, and people can find that at worldrelief.org. I love that. Hey, we're going to pray for you as you um, engage as well. Father, we come before you as brothers and sisters in Christ with our brother Matt, and we um, thank you for 
the way that he labors in this space. Um, we thank you for the work that is being done um, in and through World Relief. We do pray with Matt for President Biden, um, for our HHS secretary, for our congressional leaders, um, for every person involved at every level in this process. Father, it's broken, and we need you to help us find a way forward um, that acknowledges the dignity of people and, um, you know, and the laws of the land. We pray for the people who are caught up in the midst of this, who are so desperate and vulnerable. Holy God, um, assure them of your presence and your care and provide for them through your people in ways that um, right now we haven't yet even begun to imagine. And for our brothers and sisters on both sides of the border in churches, um, valiantly working with limited resources to meet this, uh, frankly, overwhelming human need. Father, um, strengthen them today. Gird them up. Inspire others to come alongside them and be conduits of your resources into those places and spaces to care for hurting people. And we do pray today for the Border Patrol and the members of the U.S. military who will be headed there to support them. Holy God, um, folks functioning in jobs today that are very, very different than the ones that they thought they might be doing. Grant them them grace, all sufficient today. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Matt, thank, thank you, you so Carmen. much. Um, and thank please you. extend our yeah, extend our uh, extend our uh, prayers to to others in this space that you know. Um, just assure them that they're not alone. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. On this National Day of Prayer, I'm wondering if you have someone or something about which you are particularly concerned and praying for today. So if you have um, a concern in your local community or at the national level, if you have a person in an elected office um, or, uh, you know, serving in, in government in a, um, in a bureaucratic role, an administrative role. Um, is there somebody specific who you are praying for today, like by name? I don't need to know the issue, but um, if you just want to share that name of that person in your place, in your local city or in your state um, or serving you at a national level, or uh, I'd, love, I'd love to hear it. I'd love for you to share that um, with us today. So you can text me at 877-933-2484. We are going to open the next hour of Mornings with Carmen um, as a part of the National Day of Prayer, we're going to be praying. We're going to be praying for the nation and the concerns herein. Um, we're going to be uh, asking God to continue to give us the privilege of, of prayer. It, it's not just a spiritual heritage, my friends. It is the very power of, of God. It's like this special tool that he gives us that we just leave in the toolbox all the time. So I'm encouraging you to use the tool of prayer today that God has given us and I'm going to invite you to join many others, including me, across the country on this National Day of Prayer and actually praying for the concerns of this land and those who serve her. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. You're listening to Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, Click the link in the show notes to give now.
And thanks.